Welcome to the podcast of MotorWeek, television's original automotive magazine. MotorWeek is made possible by Lucas Oil and TireRack.com. Here's your MotorWeek podcast host, John Davis. Thank you, Alec Webb. Welcome, everyone, to MotorWeek podcast number 289. Mm. And in Studio C at MotorWeek World Headquarters, I'm with Brian Robinson, Jessica Ray, and Alex Kellum. And Jessica, we're going to start with you. We've got three vehicles to run down, a lightning round, a viewer question. 2022 Audi RS3. I don't know about you. I thought it was a lot of fun, but tell us about it. I mean, I'd have to agree. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think it's this really nice, compact sports sedan. It's it's the defin it's the I say it, it's kinda like the new definition. <laughs> yeah. I mean I think it, it looks fantastic. Uh we had it in like a really cool blue color that I liked a lot. Um, yeah, it looks really nice inside out and we had the opportunity to take it to uh Summit Point. Uh, now, Greg did a majority of the driving for that, but I did, I personally was able to take a couple of laps uh, myself, and it really was, like, so much fun. Like, there's a lot of power to it. Obviously, it's got 401 horsepower, um, and it has a very interesting powertrain that we don't see elsewhere. It has an inline five-cylinder engine. I honestly didn't know that anyone was still making a five-cylinder <laughs> at that point. Yeah, the Saudi at this I point. Say, yeah. I don't. I yeah. have no idea, like the history behind five cylinders and 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 what they're. I, like, I think like, it was developed originally just because they needed an engine to fit in something. And but anyway. Yeah, because it is a compact yeah. sports sedan, so yeah. uh, not a lot of space. But um, it's incredible. Yeah, like really powerful. It sounded really good as well, um, and you. I just felt like there was a lot of grip. Uh, it was really. I had I had to kind of adjust my thinking a lot when I was driving it too because it is so small, uh, but it was really fun and the course that we were on was very technical so a lot of turns and um, I was also at this like one spot where there's like a jump and I and this is when Greg was driving of course but he got a fair he bit got of air going he got some air under the tires he did so um, yeah no it was just like really a really fun vehicle i will say that um after a certain point i felt like the brakes were probably not the best on this car for what our track purposes but um that didn't uh really change anything with our straight line braking test we still got 101 feet average braking for that so um you know not everybody is going to be whipping around a racetrack mm -hmm. <laughs> like we are um but yeah, just like I think overall, it was just checked all the boxes. Yeah, you know, for people that are not familiar, RS uh, is uh, the is the top performance nomenclature for an Audi, and the RS3 is their entry level vehicle. And I think Brian Robinson's Ooh. probably had more experience with um, Audi RSs over the years than anyone else. Did this car live up to its uh, its name? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we talk, talked about the engine somewhat. Very unique character to it. Uh, puts a smile on your face uh, no matter what speed you're going. The big thing with the RS vehicles, all of them, and this one in particular, uh, Audi seems to nail the drive modes, I think, more than mm -hmm. anybody else. Mm -hmm. As in, there is definite delineation between them. And so you can hammer that thing at the track all day and... Uh, you know, whatever sport mode, put it in comfort for the drive home, and it really, it drives like a luxury car. So I think um, it nails that as well. 
And, and you, as usual, just a terrific interior. Uh, you know, Audi just, I think they just still do the best interiors of anybody around. Alex, anything? Uh, not much. I didn't get to spend too much time in it, but the little bit that I did, I actually wanted to bring up the interior mm -hmm. because, um, again, you were mentioning like on the ride home, you know, it feels like a luxury car that extends well beyond just having the, um, you know, the drive modes and whatnot. I mean, the interior was plush. All the uh, like infotainment, the electronics, it felt seamless to me. The user interface, I enjoyed it. I didn't have any of these weird quirks where it was hanging up. That's something that bugs me a lot in a lot of cars. Well, I'm sure it bugs everybody. It just felt great to drive. You know, in a world where the, the so-called compact sports sedan has gotten to midsize and, and above, this just seemed like a little bit of a throwback and very welcomed. I got in it, and I felt like... Not so much I was wearing it, but it just felt cozy, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. And starting price is like just around $60,000 for the RS3. Which sounds like a lot, but in this day and age, it's not terrible. And, of course, you can get a, a three for a lot less. Yeah, and, yeah. I mean, I guess if you look at the other competition, too, it's sort of it's there. priced right there. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's move on to a car I, that I did not expect. Uh, when I first heard they were bringing back the Toyota Crown name, I was taken by a bit of a surprise. And then when I saw the car, I was even more surprised <laughs> since it has very little resemblance to the original Crown. But Brian Robinson, why don't you give us the lowdown on the return of the 20, or I should say the return of the Toyota Crown for the 2023 model year. Absolutely, and you hinted at it, the Crown, uh, was actually the first, I think, the first sedan that Toyota ever I believe made that's right. Yes. In the 1950s, and it's been on sale in Japan ever since. Uh, there's actually, this is actually the sixth, hmm, maybe 17th or six, I think 16th generation of the Crown. Mm -hmm. But we did have it here in the 70s, I think, mm -hmm. in the U.S., but it's been gone ever since. I don't think it went over very well. Sorry. Yeah, Kyle, well, I don't remember. just to give you a picture of what it looks like and then we'll get more into where it fits but if you picture a maxima uh, and a legacy combined and with a really weird front end put on that's kind of what it looks like this uh, is the new one or the old this one? this is the new one yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just kidding uh, so if you're familiar with the toyota avalon um i'm not that's going away uh, they're no longer making the Avalon, and this is somewhat its replacement. I'm not sure what the average age buyer of the Avalon was, but imagine it was in the 80s, probably, right? It has room so, in the trunk for a walker. So <laughs> this, that, they obviously would. Now, if I put stuff like that in road test, that definitely, uh, that definitely does not make it on the air. I'm just letting you know. I just made it say okay, a fact. All right, all right. That's all. It has a big trunk. That's the all. The crown also has a big trunk. But this is more to replace the Avalon, but bring that average buyer uh, way down uh, with a more stylish and... Uh, more adventure-ready uh, sedan, built more for empty nesters who want to go hit the road in a, in a very luxurious sedan, but are also willing to uh, uh, take that ad adventure that comes up along the way. So um, all of them are all-wheel drive. That's where the Subaru Legacy uh, mm -hmm. aspect comes in. And all of them are hybrid. There's two different, the standard powertrain with 236 horsepower, gets really good fuel economy, um, I think in the mid 40s, low 40s. Uh, the hybrid max, similar to what they did with the Tundra, not the same uh, powertrain as the Tundra, but that's 
has an all-new 2.4-liter turbo engine, which you can now get in the Highlander as well. Just the engine, not the Hybrid Max. But uh, that puts out 340 horsepower and 400 pound-feet of torque. Uh, so it's it feels uh, really powerful. You sacrifice some fuel economy. Uh, yeah, it only yeah. gets like 30 MPGs, yeah. so not bad. Uh, but certainly not what most people would associate. That's with probably hybrid. five or six more than the Avalon did. And uh, and you get it. You get a lot more. You can only get that in the top platinum trim. Uh, but you get a lot more with it. You get an adaptive variable suspension uh, from Lexus, uh, which is very nice. Mm. Um, totally different driving experience with that compared to the standard model. And you also get a true six-speed automatic transmission. Mm. Again, makes for a much better driving experience. So. As far as back to what it looks like, their point was to make it to appeal to SUV buyers that still want a sedan. Which is why they did a hatchback like. Uh, it's kind of like, it is a yeah. sedan, but it looks like looks a hatchback. Like a hatchback yeah. And it looks, they talk, it sits four inches taller than a Camry, based the same chassis as Camry, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it's barely any more ground clearance. So huh. it's not like so a So you've got SUV-type seating. You've got, yeah, you sit a little higher. The body is, you get more greenhouse. Mm -hmm. It looks, it makes for a little bit awkward-looking vehicle. Um, but they, I'm not sure how much, you know, off-roading or anything like that you'll be doing. But they kind of are playing that up. But like I said, it barely has any more ground clearance. It just sits taller. There's more greenhouse whatever. I wonder why they didn't actually go ahead and make a, a true hatchback I guess that market maybe doesn't like hatchbacks I don't know yeah no. it's yeah I mean I, they're practical but like yeah. people are just not buying them sedans you mean yeah. we'll ha we'll ha like hatchback hatchbacks sedan. no they did the word hatchback is is got the same connotation as station wagon in this mm -hmm. country and but it drives really nice um it really bridges that gap between Toyota and Lexus, much like the Avalon did. Uh, one more, one final note on the styling. If you get the top platinum, you can get this two-tone trim, uh, which is essentially a black hood and a black roof, and then this big chunk of black on the tail, which, depending on the, like on the dark, like on the red and the copper, it looks okay. On some of the other colors, like white, uh, it just looks really so, odd. So Camry, Camry yeah, tried that as well. It looks really odd. But well, for all, for all my friends out there that own Avalons, I apologize. Uh, <laughs> you know who you are. Yeah. That was um, definitely John know. saying that. No. <laughs> yes. It wasn't any, anything that Brian wrote. Uh, you know, uh, I was taken aback by it when I saw it. Um, to me, it looked, uh, I don't know, uh, just odd. It's it's mm -hmm. not it's not a not that we haven't seen our share of odd looking vehicles lately, like the BMW iX, but it, it's just an odd looking vehicle. Um, but of course, the Avalon buyer is primarily looking for room. They're looking for, uh, of course, dependability. They're looking for comfort. Uh, they like the high seating position, probably. Uh, so I think it actually checks off all the boxes and gives them something with the standard all-wheel drive they really didn't have before. So yeah, yeah, but if you're you're looking to replace a vehicle that wasn't as popular as you wanted, you think you maybe would make it a little better looking? I don't know. I don't know. I, we always talk about styling be, <laughs> being for very but subjective. It could but be like a lot of, oddly enough, could be like a lot of people's cup of tea. You know, they're like, oh, my gosh. Yeah, like because 
even though you said it has like no additional ground clearance than a normal sedan. People are like, oh, but it looks it like look, it. Look it, does. Does. Yeah. it looks like it does. And it's not like they're going off the beaten track. The biggest you know thing that they're going to go over is mm. is a, a, a small curb or something. So Start, starting price is right at fifty. Um, the um, mm. Oh, and, sorry, forty. Yeah. Sorry, right at forty. And it's a it's a start, big start mid price is right at forty. Fifty uh, for, for the, the platinum. Yeah. And it's a big mid size slash full size sedan. I mean, it's a big sedan. It's oh, firmly full size. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, firmly full size. So to all of you Pontiac Aztec owners out there that are looking to replace your vehicle, maybe this is something you should consider. And I know I'm going to get a lot of criticism on that, too. <laughs> Most people won't even know what Aztec was, so they're not. The owners will. They're Googling it right now. <laughs> well, let's move. We're going to move on. And we've got one more car we're going to talk about. Uh, and it's probably really the car of the week, if not the month or the year. Uh, but we're going to come back to that. Alex will give us a preview on... The newest of a rare breed, and that is a true two-seat sports car. But first, we're going to get to a couple of other things. We've got a lightning round and a viewer question. And our lightning round is based on uh, some new information that just came our way recently. StoreDot, a pioneer of extreme fast-charging battery technology for electric vehicles, has recently stated that mass-produced solid-state batteries, those are ones that don't have any liquid on the inside, the electrolyte is solid, are still at least a decade from mass production, and the global automotive manufacturers should be considering interim technologies in the medium term, such as semi-solid batteries. Do you think this will hinder EV adoption? As a little background, some automakers have said that these solid-state batteries, which promise more charge for longer range, but most importantly, very quick charging, are only five years away. We've heard that some of the government labs say it's much longer. And now here's uh, someone who actually markets electric batteries saying, uh, don't, don't pause and just wait for it around the corner. It's at least a decade away. Is this going to uh, hinder what we're seeing in EV adoption, which right now is up to about 7% of the market in this country? Uh, I'll go first, since yeah, everyone's please. looking at me. Um, I don't think it will hinder anything, really. I think we're still in the slow adoption phase, and a lot of it comes down to while there's more and more EVs coming out, um, manufacturers aren't really building that many of them. Um, Talk um, about that. Oh, well, just like you hear about them, and then you go and you try to put a deposit on one, and it's like all 23s are sold out, now placing orders for 24. So right. it's going to be at least a year away almost, no matter what you order. Um, so we're already in that slow trickle phase, so I don't see um, how it would uh, hinder um, the growth that much. That's my opinion. Anybody have another comment? I mean, I think in like a long-term sense, you know, we're talking a decade away. So... You know, five years from now, we have no idea, like, what the new car market is going to look like. Hopefully, at this at that point, the production will be will have bounced back significantly. Um, but we have no idea. Mm -mm. Um, and ideally, five years from now would be when a lot of people would be at a point where the infrastructure is better. Um, cars are more available. Maybe they are, we're supposed to have a couple more affordable EVs coming within the next two, three years. So ideally, you know, um, EV adoption is, is, 
should significantly ramp up with a lot of these things. But I do think there are a lot of people who are waiting on this technology and they think, you know, I'm not going to buy an EV until there's the solid state. And even if they don't have an, any idea of what a solid state battery is, they are thinking of the same concepts that they have, like, like faster charging. I want to be able to charge a battery the same amount of time that I mm -hmm. want to go to a gas station. And while... You know, logically, when we think about battery technology, that's very difficult for, like, us to rationalize, being the experts, um, and also the different ways in which you can charge an EV. This is, you know, that's what it's going to take for certain people to buy them. Or at least for them to go from being a second vehicle for around town use to being the only vehicle they've mm -hmm. got for yeah. every use. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think Jessica just hit the nail on the head. Uh, to me, it kind of just goes back to the dialogue of, you know, as technology, or at least, you know, what people are saying is as technology continues to um, grow, you know, more people are going to want to adopt these systems. And you're right, there's a lot of things right now that people can point at and say, oh, well, it takes X amount of time to charge, or oh, how long is the battery going to last? Like the lifespan of the car, I mean, not just range, but range, of course, the safety aspect of it. I believe the solid states are supposed to be safer just because, you know, they're not using yeah. The, the liquid. So mm -hmm. there's a lot that goes into it. And you're right. I think there's a lot of people that will look at this system and say, well, I want to wait for that. But as we've seen, there are people that aren't going to wait, just like mm -hmm. with any technology. You know, there are people that see the EVs and go, I want that now. And they go and buy it. So I don't think it's going to hinder the adoption. I just think when this technology becomes more prevalent, more and more people are going to have less reasons to say, OK, I don't want to do that. Or like you said, that's not my primary. Mm. But think about it. If we're really talking about, I mean, all the the California rules mm -hmm. and everything else that are pushing for pretty much total EV adoption by 2035, that's about right. Sure. You know, yes. The, you know, that's yes. about right. They'll that's be the they'll time. just about be starting to emerge on the market by that time. And so. you know, you and I were talking about this uh, kind of off off uh, yesterday about how, you know, uh, lithium ion was kind of the same way, mm -hmm. right? You know, the nickel metal hydride batteries were out and then they're like, oh, lithium ion is coming soon. But, you know, uh, nickel metal hydride was used for uh, probably what, 20, year, 30 20, years, 20 30 plus years, years yeah. you know, in, in vehicles mm -hmm. before lithium ion came along. So yeah. I think, you know, we might be in the middle of, of that change with the solid states. And people don't realize that uh, practical lithium-ion batteries uh, took probably about 50 to 60 years to really be developed. I mean, you can go back into the 1960s and see the automakers like Ford working feverishly on new battery technologies, and they hadn't even discovered, discovered lithium yet. But somewhere in the 80s or 90s, it started getting practical for things like laptops and stuff, and the rest is history. And now we have them in little yeah. teeny tiny batteries yeah. and pretty much everything we yeah. own. <laughs> So let's transition to our viewer question, which also has to do with battery-powered vehicles. And this is a pretty interesting question, and it's a very good one. Um, this is an email from Saeed. Why the delay to hybrids or full electric suburban class vehicles? Yukon, Escalade, Expedition XL. He says he has ordered a Tesla Cybertruck, but ideally he'd love to have a turbo diesel four for highway cruising and a battery with a legitimate 50 mile battery range, a PHEV, plug-in hybrid. The underpinnings of the F-150 are the Silverado electrics are the same as the big three normal vehicles, aren't they? Well, not quite. 
He said, I know there is a ta- was a Tahoe hybrid, but I really want three rows with space for luggage. So really the question here is, why aren't we seeing a move towards a plug-in hybrid in a full-size SUV, three-row, et cetera? We know there's some fully electrics coming, but why this gap? That's a good question. Okay, well, I'll start. <laughs> you want to start? I'll start. <laughs> When you, when the manufacturer looks at the realities of today with all the supply chain problems and the impending rules from California for EV adoption, where there a plug-in hybrid will have to have at least a 50-mile range to be counted, mm. they're all saying the complexity of that and I've got so many more parts and I can't get parts now I'm going to take the course of least resistant, which is to go all electric with fewer parts. And that's certainly what GM is doing. Mm-hmm. I think that's what Volvo is doing and some others. So they're just saying, we know we can sell every EV we make right now. Why do I want to put resources there? And I personally, as a consumer, would love to have something that's got a, a lot more range as a plug-in hybrid. But I think I understand the argument. Uh, yes, uh, basically what I was kind of thinking is, like, why invest in that if, like you said, the market's starting to trend more towards just EVs? Why would a manufacturer say, well, let's this, like, part, this niche of the market, let's let's cater to that for now? I mean, it'd be great to see more. I, I think we're skipping hybrids in a lot of ways. but Oh, I think we are, too. Know. I think Mr. Toyota uh, summed it up a few weeks ago when he said, that he disagrees with the California rules, mm-hmm. and which will likely be adopted by up to 20 more states, because he said if you wanted to reduce carbon footprint, he said you can sell three just regular hybrids and do a better job than just selling one electric as far as because you'd be you know, doubling or tripling fuel mm-hmm. economy. So I do think that the governmental rules maybe are politically look great politically, but they don't make common sense. Well, in this class, it's like very difficult, too, because these are vehicles that see a lot of time on the highway. They get, I mean, and people expect a lot from them, like towing. They do towing, uh, cargo space, you know, batteries infringe on a lot of that. Um, So it it, it makes it difficult, which is why, you know, it, it always is a I understand that that in the engineering of it is quite complicated, but, you know, seeing like an additional five to 10 miles per gallon in that full size class, you know, going from, uh, well, the, I will say that the, the new Wagoneer is supposed to get 24 miles per gallon on the highway, which I think is some of the best that you Mm -hmm. can get in the class. I mean, if you could get over 30 miles per gallon on the highway in a full size SUV, something with three rows that was like a Tahoe size, that would do a significant, um, or it would dig into that, like the emissions issue, because, you know, just adding an additional five miles per gallon on something like that is a significant change. So to me, it is kind of, it's a bummer that, that, um, you know, the technology isn't, um, you know, they've, they've done wonders with the V8s and, and you know, the fact that 20 years ago we were getting 12 miles per gallon in some of these things and now we can get over 20 miles per gallon I think is great. But it has to be better, you know, especially if these are vehicles that get driven 200,000 miles in five years mm. or in seven years. So what about the uh, the uh, the new uh, 
Tundra powertrain, the hybrid powertrain. I mean, Toyota's already put that into one of the SUVs, right? Sequoia. Sequoia. Yeah. 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 So, but it didn't seem to boost its fuel economy that much. No, it's more about delivering you know, more power. For uh, towing and so forth. Yeah, kind of replacing the V8 uh, with a six-cylinder. Six-cylinder, yeah. yeah. But to get, he wants the legitimate 50-mile range. He wants a legitimate PHEV. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And a vehicle that big would require a substantial amount of battery, which you just keep adding weight, which Motor you got to have the fuel, you gotta have a fuel yeah. tank fuel? and so, a big engine. battery. It's, battery, electric it's tough, motor. It's tough with a vehicle that size. If you want to get 50-mile range, you know, in a compact car, it doesn't require a whole lot of battery. It's it's much easier to accomplish. It's just it's tough on a vehicle this big that already weighs 6,000 pounds. Yeah. So, Syed, I'd probably you know, that would be something that if they ever do develop uh, a practical um, solid-state battery or go the next day, step and be able to put electric charge on a chip, it might be more practical. Right now, the weight of all these vehicles is going the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. And we will see, I mean, I think, I don't know who's going to be the first, well, we know the first to launch a three-row. It's it's Rivian. Yeah. They have the R1S. But I think next up, if I'm Hyundai. not mistaken, is going to be, yeah, the EV9. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So, yep. which is a funky looking thing. And I can't wait for us to actually like yeah. see the real production vehicle in person, but... Um, yeah, you know, key is it Kia? Yeah. Oh, Kia, Kia EV9. Yeah, Hyundai. Well, the Hyundai basically showed What's the first concept. I forgot. Do we know what it's? Uh, I don't remember the name. I, is it kind of an Ionic? Ionic. They've, shown the, they've shown the concept. But yeah, so, Ionics, yeah, and, so, and then like Vinfast, I think has. A, Vinfast. Oh, I cannot forget Nine. about Vinfast. You can. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, they're building a giant plant in the Carolinas yeah. to, to be make uh, three EV models for the U.S. And they've already shown their biggest three rower. And once they're, we start. Seeing them, you know, the we there. I don't know when their their arrival is imminent. They say. I thought it was mm-hmm. like end of this year, first of next year, end of this year. Okay, yeah. so so those are the those are the few that are. And we um, don't have a clue on pricing yet. I don't think. No. Now we're going to circle back, and Alex has been sitting here you know, holding the paper in his hands. He's just <laughs> about ready. He's got some air underneath his uh, his self on the seat. He's ready to talk about. The all-new 2023 Nissan Z two-seat sports car. I guess we can call it all-new. Here we go, Brian. The perfectionist. Okay, the engine's got the engine's got some carryover. The frame's got some carryover, but a new generation. The looks have a little bit of carryover. Well, the looks have got a lot of carryover. The new Z. Alex, take it away. Yes. Okay. So we'll start with the most obvious thing, or at least obvious to me. It's very cool. Uh, it's great. I, it's a great it, looking car. It absolutely plays on nostalgia, as a lot of things do. Uh, I don't care. It was cool. I've driven a lot of cool cars at this job. Not to brag, I think I own a cool car, but this thing got me the most attention. Now that might be because of the highlighter yellow paint and the, <laughs> yeah, the bronze wheels for our proto spec tester, but we'll we'll get to that. Let's start with the common denominator. All models, regardless of which trim you get, you're going to get a twin-turbo 3-liter V6. It's 400 horsepower and 350 pound-feet of torque. You can either have a 6-speed manual or a 9-speed automatic. That is a no-cost option, at least to my understanding. So yeah, you, you, can get, you can get either, which, you know, enthusiasts rejoice. Mm-hmm. It's rear-wheel drive, of course, and it's a two-seater. Um, okay, so it is mostly... It's mostly new. new. It's got a lot of new to it, but uh, one of its uh, 
it's using a modified, updated, whateverified you want to call it, uh, platform from the outgoing 370, which I believe was modified off of the 350. Yeah. So and, we're and looking. six-cylinder basic engines been around mm -hmm. forever. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're. Uh, yeah, we're yeah. But now still, it is it is yeah. it's got new bracing. It's stronger. It has less flex, so it has been updated. But it's it's an old platform. Speaking of that, if we want to compare it to the uh, outgoing 370, just to give you an idea, dimensionally, it's 172.4 inches long. The old one. 168, uh, but it shares the same wheelbase, 100.4, 72 and a half inches wide and basically 52 inches tall. The car right now that this is being compared the most to is the Toyota Supra. I would, mm -hmm. I would say mm -hmm. that's the one that everyone is saying, what's it like compared to the Supra? So size-wise, um, they're almost the same. Uh, the Supra is just a hair longer at 172.5, but the wheelbase is a little shorter at 97.2. Horsepower, and this is where things get a little, little more interesting. So the Supra, if we're talking about the six-cylinder, the mm -hmm. inline six, 382 horsepower, 368 pound-feet of torque. While the Supra does start, and I'm going to get into MSRPs on the Z, uh, but while the Supra does start around like the low 40s, like 43, that is for the two-liter four-cylinder. Four -cylinder. Yeah, the new. With the Z, like I mentioned, every single trim, which the, the starting one does start around that price as well. I think a little bit lower, actually. Yeah. You get that twin turbo six. So, you know, maybe it's purely a testosterone thing. You know, you want the bigger engine, but something to consider. Uh, our Proto Z in particular starts at 54-ish grand. That's with the destination charge. And that is the lowest price we have talked about, I think, on today's podcast. And there you go. Oh, uh, no, the crown was 40000 Oh, okay. oh sorry. I stand yeah. corrected. Come on. <laughs> I stand corrected. It happens. Uh, but the Proto Z is limited to 240 units nationally. Mm. You know, 240. Uh, you see what they did yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Nissan Z uh, Sport, which is the entry trim, is at the, the lower. It's like 41,000, and the Z Performance is at 51. So uh, that's almost down at the price of the. Yeah, yeah. You know, we're we're getting there. The crown. The performance no. does add. I mean, it's a 10 grand yeah. difference, but our Proto Z, I mean, basically has all those goodies. Um, so it's like a mechanical limited slip diff, 19-inch raised wheels, though ours, of course, were that really slick bronze color. Um, on the standard model, you'd get, I think it's 225 tires all the way around. The uh, the performance, you get staggered, 255 in the front, 275. The picture I'm trying to paint here is that in, in all ways, at least numerically speaking, it is a performance car. It's mm -hmm. a little two-seater sports car. Talk to me about what it looks but like. What Give it, me the what history is it? of what it looks like. Oh, man. Well, that's the thing, actually. So you look at it, and, you know, it's it's fresh, it's new. It doesn't look like, at least to me, it doesn't really look like the outgoing Z. But there's something about it. The only way I can describe it is even though it is new. And the one we had, you know, probably a lot of people that saw it, it was the first one they saw in person. It is unmistakably Z. I mean, you look at it. Everything from the headlights, it harkens back to the old Datsuns to me, the, the rear end especially, even down to the little, uh, the little Z emblem on, on the... Uh, the badge on the... Yeah, yeah. On, the, on the sail panel. It's just, it's, it's, all, it's all there. And, I mean, as a looker, it looks great. You go into the interior, and, I mean, I'm a sucker for these things, but it's still got the three-gauge uh, pod, like, on the middle of the dashboard mm -hmm. for, like, your turbo, your voltmeter, all that, and I just think that stuff's cool. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the interior, though, this is actually, in my opinion, where you you start to get into the area where you can see it's new wrappings or, you know, it's like teaching an old dog new tricks, right? Uh, 
there is a new like digital like gauge cluster, which is really nice. I really liked it. Um, but some of the some of the materials to me weren't of the highest quality, in my opinion. That's just mm. me. Things like that. I still really liked it. Still like the interior. But you could see uh, a few places I mean, where it was it, built it, to it, price. Sure. It, yeah. yeah. And and that's the that's actually what I was gonna say is like yeah. you can kind of see that. Like it's built to be in that price point. And I don't think it's, you know, gaudy or terrible I mean, or anything. It's just what it is. You know, that's it's been its car. mission for like a long time. Mm -hmm. It was like an economical, I don't know, sports view, sports car. But how often I, do we see a concept? And my God, Brian, tell yeah. me how long ago <laughs> we saw a concept of this thing. Five years ago, uh, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Uh, right about the time they stopped selling the 370. You know, it's, it looks just like the, the original car. It looks to me yeah. like oh, the yeah. original concept. Mm -hmm. So they They're, didn't change it a lot. They just took a long time for it to come out. At the corner of my street, uh, there is a guy who has an import. It's a right-hand drive Datsun mm. 240, and it's in yellow. And I had to pull well, the day I got to take it home. I had to pull up and talk to him, and it was just like, yeah. I mean, you can see all the similarities. It was great. Uh, you know, it's history. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's a true driver's car, I think, in a lot of ways. Although not everybody liked the way it drove. I did. How did you feel about it? Uh, I didn't get a whole lot of time in it, but I thought it drove great. Um, the interesting thing to me, I probably liked the interior maybe a little more than you did, Alex. I thought that was mm -hmm. maybe um, the biggest improvement that I saw. Definitely a modern-looking mm -hmm. uh, interior compared to the 370 uh, and the 350. Um, uh, this, I don't know we give them a hard time about calling it all new when it's really not, but at the same time, mm -hmm. in order for— Toyota to bring out a new Supra, they had to make they had to go to BMW Correct. for help. Mm -hmm. right. So like, which is better, uh, going to BMW to get help you make your uh, Asian uh, sports car, or take you know steal from yourself and just make a much better mm -hmm. version of what you had? Uh, I don't know, but I think I think as you mentioned, they definitely got the look right, and uh, yeah, it's a better Z in uh, every way. I thought it was a little softer than the Supra, but I liked it. I I still thought steering felt terrific yeah i think it's got they did something with the electronic steering yeah. it's like a new they updated it yeah. and it did feel good yeah i liked it i think for, oh i love the you know, shifter i thought it oh was, the shifting was great yeah. the clutch felt great to me it was very firm um i mean the only thing i didn't really like about the whole driving experience for me personally was like my moving my feet around the footwork and not that the pedals were claustrophobic but i mean you got to remember i wear giant clown shoes so it's you know my foot's getting caught on things and i'm just like okay you know but outside of that i think if you were daily driving this thing you would love it you take it on a spirited drive on the weekend you are going to love it if you push it you'll probably find those limits but you'll oh, probably I always do that felt, in a lot of cars. i always thought the z was like a daily drive like could very easily be a daily driver mm -hmm. i my dad had a 350, and that was probably one of one of my like favorite cars to drive as a 16 year old. Just oh wow! Yeah, I was yeah. a lucky duck. Cool? I was a lucky duck. <laughs> but no, but it was you know I was driving an Altima. That was my daily, so oh. it was a, it was a treat to be able to drive the 350. But yeah, no, that was always a fun car. I didn't get to spend any time in this Z, unfortunately. But I think like they no, nailed she, the styling. And, and she was too busy being in Italy driving Lamborghinis. Oh, true. So excuse yeah, me. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> But terrific-looking car. Oh, yeah. I wish them all the best with it. Well, we have almost come to the end of this podcast, but we've come to the part where we talk about rant and raves, and um, we're sort of changing the way we do some of our rant and raves and, and, and looking at um, 
things that maybe manufacturers do, uh, the things that in the industry that we can't always figure out why, rather than just, you know, the nuisance driver who sits on your tail, you know, constantly, because mm-hmm. like, everybody, I think, drives that mm-hmm. way now. So has anybody got a rant or a rave that has to be something of something maybe we've observed that's going on or a trend or whatever? Uh, I have something that is both, okay. because depending on whether the manufacturer does it. I don't know what the technical term is, but your seats, like your driver's seat, where mm-hmm. like underneath your thighs, you can pull it out to mm-hmm. make to make it longer. Oh. I love seat that. Bottom extensions. Yes. yes. Oh, I hate those. I love those. More people <laughs> do that, please. I love it. BMW's had those for a long time, and but other, I'm, I've I'm seen uncultured, it so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, you know, it seems to be popping up again. Yeah, I think I've seen them in Lincoln's. Um, Luxury, the luxury cars have them, obviously. Yeah. But, I, I but, dislike them. Well, they... <laughs> Too many back. I, I actually think that's an argument between people with long legs and people with short that, legs. That might, yeah. Yeah, that might be it. I mean, yeah. that's the whole point, to get more uh, thigh support from the seat. Yeah. Hmm. I like them when they're there, um, as long as they basically have a lot of adjustment, mm. you know, whether you can... You don't have lots of little dedicated stops so that you can't really get it just exactly the way you want. Right, and they tend to be, the ones, particularly the BMW ones, because it's kind of the material's kind mm. of dissed out there, so they're basically crumb catchers as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, he's right. I thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're no. Oh, that's a good one. That, okay, that's a good one. so that's something you like. I I like. I, I, I can see. I can oh. see where it could be done wrong, and it could turn into a rant. But like, I think the Audi has it. The one, the oh, well, the, one, uh, the one we have right now, the, the E-tron. Q4. Yeah, and yeah. actually, I think the RS3 have, had it too. Yeah, I think. Yeah. And um, any car I get in, it, look, it doesn't have to be fancy. It'll be manual adjusting. I, I think it. I've only it's seen great. it on like a leather leather seats i don't think i've mm. seen it on a vehicle with cloth seats but then again usually that's like a premium it's like a premium sure. option so like a leather-esque seat would could be a wear situation too mm. yeah so anyone else i do have uh, i have a rant for this everybody knows i i'll come up with some sort of rant no but um it's funny because john and i were having a conversation yesterday and i was we were, i was talking about how there's I was looking on the PlugShare app, which is a great app if you have an electric vehicle of any type, because this it's pretty much like the gold standard of it, finding it looks chargers. At all, char- all network chargers. And so I was looking at it the other day, and I did not see a single fast charger over 50 kilowatts on the eastern shore of Maryland, over the Bay Bridge, or in the southern part of Delaware. And right, when now, I say southern part of Delaware, I mean most of Delaware below Wilmington. All right. To be fair, now we we we're in Owings Mills, Maryland, so we're in the Mid-Atlantic area. Uh, but I have to tell you, what, what you're getting ready to say is pretty much true up and down most of the East Coast. Go yes. So I kind of thought. I, oh, I thought to myself, I swear I had seen. A 150 fast charger. Uh, My mom lives over on the eastern shore, so I go over there a fair bit. Um, And I was like, I swear I had seen it. So I'm kind of like looking uh, through the PlugShare app, and I'm just kind of, I'm like, all right, I'm pretty sure I I knew there were charge point chargers. So I just look, toggle to just charge point chargers. And all of them popped up as a little, um, with a little wrench. And I look at some of the reviews, and they're 
none of the charge points and and charge point uh had a partnership with royal farms so they're at all these uh, royal farms gas stations and stores and all of the royal farms charge point stations and there had to have been 10 to 15 mm -hmm. of them on the in delaware on the eastern shore of maryland all of them were out of commission and I was like, that's so weird. Why would every single one be out of commission? So I look a little bit deeper into the reviews and somebody actually reached out to Royal Farms. Turns out ChargePoint changed from 3G to 4G without telling them, mm. making all of their chargers that they had installed obsolete. Well, that's, you know, one of the things behind that is the cell phone companies dropped 3G in mm -hmm. a lot of areas. Just, I mean, it was virtually it's, overnight. Well, it's also going to become an issue in a lot of uh, vehicles from the early 2010s to mid-2010s. Uh, if you've got Lexus. OnStar in an early vehicle, it doesn't work anymore. I know yeah. that for a fact. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I just, I thought that was crazy to think. And so, uh I believe at this point, Royal Farms is looking into other alternatives because now all of the chargers that they probably made a decent investment in putting into their stations are now unusable and will never be able to be used again as far as they are concerned. Mm -hmm. So they're looking into alternatives. Um, but yeah, no, I just I found that I kind of find that unacceptable because uh, for those of you who, who don't live on the East Coast and don't live here in the Mid-Atlantic, uh, Delaware and the eastern shore of Maryland are very big tourist destinations Huge. in the summertime. And so the fact that there are n no fast chargers, literally now are no working fast chargers over 50 kilowatts is Which is crazy. the difference between sitting there for 45 minutes or a lot longer. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's my rant. I'm, I, I'm really, really hoping that by next summer, there are um, some new fast chargers over there. I was going to take, I've forgotten which vehicle was, if it's an electric vehicle we had in here, and driving to Ocean City, was it 130, 130, 140 miles, something like that? Yeah. I yeah. basically said, okay, there's one charger in town. It's slow. I have to sit there for quite a long time, and I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I was staying in an apartment, so I had no no way to plug it in. I I will say, I mean, I mean, most EVs, uh, you know, we have a 250 mile, I would say average is like 250 mile range. Mm -hmm. I took the EQS uh, sedan to my mom's house, which is probably like, you got like 140, 130 mm -hmm. miles. I brought it there and back easy peasy because I had a 360 mile range but the fact is most EVs cannot do that and while I had no issues with it a majority of of EVs that people own even Teslas which actually there are some Tesla superchargers so it's not quite as no. big of a deal for the Tesla right. people but for everybody else um but it, yeah it's just it just really stinks <laughs> it just stinks man. I think that's about the most <laughs> way. Play, uh, way to end one of our podcasts I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Jessica. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, everybody. Today, we did our podcast with the help of our two-wheeling reporter, Brian Robinson, our digital producer and the producer of the podcast, Jessica Ray, and, of course, our writer, Alex Kellum. 
And on the backside, making everything happen, our audio engineer, David Wainwright, who always makes us sound much better than we have any right to, and our podcast creator, Bob Mixter. To all of you out there that are new to our podcast for more Motor Week, please hop on over to our website at motorweek.org or .com. You pick. You can watch <laughs> complete episodes of Motor Week for free over at pbs.org slash motorweek. We stream on an awful lot of platforms, but really, if you're a motorhead and you want to get into Motor Week, please go over and follow us on YouTube, youtube.com. You can follow us on Facebook, too. YouTube.com slash MotorWeek. We have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of our features, our road test, our retro reviews. It's it's actually thousands now. I think we have like over 4,000 videos. If you want to get into MotorWeek, that's the place to go. Oh, we also have a retro review marathon this weekend. I should have plugged that earlier. It's a holiday weekend. No, no. Well, why are we doing it? It <laughs> is a holiday weekend. Well, it's, I guess well, technically. It is now. It is now. <laughs> I'm thinking because so many of places day? of election day on Tuesday. Every time it's, Motor Week's on, it's a holiday. Yeah. There you go. Well, it's just we so like to do them at the, it at the first weekend? of the month. First of the month. First okay. of the month. Shows you how connected um, I am. So, yeah, we do them like the first weekend of the month. And so because uh, this is the first weekend of November, we're doing one season 20, part two. So reviews from... 2000 and 2001, so turn of the century sort of stuff, uh, getting into a lot of the, the quirkier uh, road tests that of we've course, done. Now that means that Ben Davis, who basically is the one who is behind our retro reviews, has convinced Jessica that this is what we're going to do this weekend. Yeah, he's in charge of that. I just like... <laughs> you, you get the he word He just tells out. me, and yeah, I tell everybody else. So yeah, we have a retro review marathon this weekend starting Saturday, November 5th. At 8 a.m. Are we going to do one um, over the next one after that will probably be the first of December. We won't do one before or after Thanksgiving, Um, probably. I've got to get back to you guys. uh, Get back to you on the next podcast for that one. But we're definitely doing um, we're doing one every week in December. Ah, there we go. That's what I was every week in December. We're starting at from the early days. We're going back to season one, two and three and four. And you can see all this sterling talent that was on the first season and how just um, energetic John was in those early days. You don't want to miss it. No, you don't want (laughs) to miss it, but you might go to sleep if you do watch it. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. And remember out there, if you've got a screen or a phone, you can find Motor Week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. And thanks for being a part of Motor Week. You have been listening to the podcast of Motor Week, television's original automotive magazine. Motor Week is made possible by Lucas Oil and TireRack.com. For additional information on podcasts, videos, and showtimes, visit our website at MotorWeek.org. And watch Motor Week, television's longest-running automotive magazine series, each week on your local PBS station.